Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and... Because those mm-hmm. are things that are still true today. And I wonder how much of that we can credit to the fact that it was written by a woman. Because DeWitt Bodine was one of the few female screenwriters of the era. I'm thinking probably a bit. And as I said, I've actually read a bunch of her Are you sure DeWitt Bodine's a woman? Yeah. Hang on a second. I'm just going on I thought she was. doing a Google image search. Well, I googled and then there was like a video of some guy. Um, oh, shoot. It says on I, Wikipedia, a man. Homer. And, and there I'll, are lots of pictures of men. I thought that was a woman. <laughs> it's a very pretty woman's name. <laughs> now I feel stupid and I'm going to go back and edit this out and make it a big outtake. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even question it. I'm like, sure, Noel always knows what he's talking about. I usually, I thought for years. <laughs> I thought for years. I just took it for granted. Born Homer DeWitt Bodine. Homer. <laughs> Well, now I feel like a complete idiot who just stuck his foot in his mouth. Oh. And I've been, I've been reading his scripts. I keep saying, well, I keep wanting to say I, I've been reading her scripts for years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my mental image has just been shattered. <laughs> After we get off this call, he's just going to be like in the corner like, oh, God. <laughs> I've been lied to all these years. Lied to, humiliated. Okay, so never mind that then. I hate remakes. I love remakes. What is the matter? Welcome everybody to part one of a new episode of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me as always is Evie. I did not stay up all night eating cheese, and I do not appreciate the implication, frankly. You did stay up all night eating cheese, didn't you? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. (laughs) Joining us today is a very special guest. Special guest, who are you? Hello, my name's Kaylee, and I actually do have cheese right next to me, Evie. Yay! (gasps) Woman after my own heart. My post-graduation celebration was a box of cheese and crackers. Oh, okay, that is delicious. (laughs) Yeah. So hello again. So Kaylee, what do you do online? I occasionally review books for The Sparkle Project, and I also write about young adult literature at The Book Lantern. And I'm currently reviewing lots of dystopian YA novels, which I'm calling The Orwell Project. And that's going very slowly, but I'm getting there eventually because they're all really boring to read. I know. I've made it a quarter of the way through Matched. I don't know if I'm going to finish. (laughs) It took me so long to read that book. I finished it and I did do an air punch because I was like, I'm finished. This is the most boring thing I've read in a long time. And I've read part of Proust. Oh, yeah. And then also speaking of a long time, I have you to blame for giving me Fifty Shades of Grey, which I'm still... <laughs> hey, if I love <laughs> reading your recaps. It's like, oh, my God, why? It fluctuates between like this and this is just so boring and I hate it. It gives me so much joy. I wanted to inflict it on everyone else because the book just annoyed me and infuriated me and the entire success behind it has made me much angrier than it really should have. But I got the most popular review I've ever written out of it because it was the most ridiculous review I've ever written of a book. Which I still haven't read yet just because I'm waiting until (laughs) I finish writing mine. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't know anything about British politics, that might be a really weird review. I know quite a bit thanks to you. Um, <laughs> this is why you follow me. You have to learn things. It's good for the rest of the world, I feel. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. So anyways, yes, Evie, you want to tell us what movies we're covering on this episode? 
I don't know. I got all distracted by the stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, this episode, we're going to do Cat People from 1942. The next episode, it's going to be Cat People from 1982, which is kind of, I guess, a 20-year gap in between. 40. Shut up. I can math. <laughs> I haven't had enough coffee yet to math properly. Shut up. So, yes, the 1942 Cat People is the first in a series of now very infamous RKO low-budget horror movies produced by Val Luton. Who I love. I do, too. And unfortunately, I've only seen about half of his movies so far. They uh, did a marathon when the DVD set was coming out, and I still need to get that DVD set. I've got the DVD set. I just haven't watched it all yet. And there was a great documentary on his entire career. I know. I saw the documentary, too, because it was on TV. And they did the documentary, and they did a marathon of the movies. So I watched that and was just like... These are so good. Because I'd seen them, most of them individually before mm-hmm. that. And I saw all of them and was just like, I love this. I love this so much. And then I tried to hug the TV. It was a little awkward. So yeah, I've seen The Cat Peoples. I've seen Ghost Ship. I've seen Bedlam. I've seen The Seventh Victim, which is actually my favorite of the bunch. I still haven't seen I Walked with a Zombie yet. That one is so good. His films were very famous in that the studio told him that We'll let you do whatever you want as long as the budget comes in under $150,000 and each film is shorter than 75 minutes. And you have to use the titles we give you. Yeah. So literally they gave him these exploitation titles and he built stories around them. But what made them famous is that he built these very deep, complex psychological character studies that focused more on suspense than on actual horror. And The Cat People was the first of them. And it's uh, written by DeWitt Bodine, who's one of my favorite screenwriters. He wrote about half of the Val Luton films, and I've actually got his scripts for most of them, and they just read beautifully. And then he went on to do uh, The Enchanted Cottage and The Miracle of the Bells before becoming a TV writer. And he wrote for mostly anthology shows, so they were all just one-off stories. What was that gasp? The Enchanted Cottage. I really love that movie. I know. He He's a damn good writer. Mm-hmm. We'll get into the cat people. Which was his first screenplay, too, I believe. He was a novelist. And it was directed by Jacques Tourneur, a Frenchman who grew up in Hollywood, then moved back to France, then moved back to Hollywood. And after his work on the Val Luton films, did a whole ton of westerns, a bunch of TV, and actually did this great film called Curse of the Demon, a.k.a. Night of the Demon, which I really oh, enjoyed. Love the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a slight fangirl for the sort of horror movies of the 20s and 30s and 40s, mainly the universal ones, the sort of the famous trademark monster ones. But this one is a special place in my heart. It's probably my favourite of the era because I'm a bit of a wimp when it comes to actual horror. So there's just something about the suspense of this piece that I absolutely adore. And I love the lead character for one thing as well. Just one that's really stuck with me for a long time. I'm not a Universal Monsters fan, but we've got a Mummy episode coming up here soon, so I'll get into it all there. But I love the Val Luton films. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad that they have continued to be as popular as they are, because so many people still learn them. They're such short films that they're so easy to get people in on. It's great to watch Cat People as well and just see how influential it has been through the entirety of horror that followed in film afterwards. Exactly, yes. Mm. Mark Gatiss did a series of History of Horror and he talked to John Carpenter and he went on about how much he hated the film. He's like, you don't see anything, nothing happens. It's like, oh, you've missed a point, John Carpenter. Well, it's also because they didn't have the money to show anything. Exactly. Well, plus the censors wouldn't have allowed them to show anything, even if they could. Right. Well, I mean, the exact opposite would be the Universal Monsters, where you see everything. And in my opinion, they're actually less scary. Mm-hmm. I think Cat People's aged way better than stuff like Dracula certainly has. Dracula is just very, very camp by our standards, and I think that Cat People still holds up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think I have a very good explanation as to why, but we'll get into that when we get into the discussion. So uh, let's move on to the synopsis. 
Outside the panther cage in the Central Park Zoo, a Serbian-born fashion designer named Irina meets a marine engineer named Oliver. The two strike up a relationship which quickly leads to marriage, but Irina only agrees when Oliver promises they'll never have any form of sexual contact. She tells him a story of how the villagers of her town turned to witchcraft, which cursed them as lycanthropic cat people and had them slaughtered by King John, the few survivors escaping to the mountains. Irina fears she'll turn into a violent animal if her desires get out of her control, hence keeping a separate room from her husband. Her fears are backed up by the way animals react to her, and a brief encounter with another woman, also from Serbia. Oliver thinks the fear is brought about entirely by anxiety, so arranges to have Irina see a therapist-slash-hypnotist named Dr. Judd. Unfortunately, Dr. Judd is secretly becoming infatuated with Irina during their sessions, not only wanting to fix her, but to claim her as his own. Also, Irina is furious when she learns Oliver has confided aspects of their relationship with Alice, a female co-worker he's close friends with. Irina goes from being prickly with Alice to actively stalking her, appearing to give the woman a pair of frights while lurking in the shadows in a growling feline form. Oliver eventually gets to the point where he reveals to Alice that he may not love Irina, and he and Alice admit they love one another. They're attacked at their office by Irina in the form of a panther, but chase her away with a cross. Returning to her apartment, Irina, again human, is confronted by Dr. Judd, who forces a kiss on her. She becomes a panther and kills him, but not before he stabs her with his cane sword. Dying, she returns to the Central Park Zoo, where she frees the caged panther so it can kill her. Evie, do you recommend the cat people? Hey, you know, why the hell do I always have to go first? This isn't fair. I didn't blah, 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 etc. Okay, I'll go first. Yes, I do. This is one of those ones where it's not, in fact, a perfect movie. There's obviously some things that would eventually be worked out in later movies that Valut made. This one's not perfect. It's a little clunky, and there's certain things that I kind of would blame on the censors at the time that they weren't allowed to show. But really, this movie is just so damn good and so smart. And it has all of these just really amazing ideas that if you're smart and you're watching for them, you pick them up and... God damn, it's just so good. Kaylee, do you recommend this movie? Oh yeah, definitely. And not just because I loved the entire era of horror, but on its own, I think it just works on almost every level. There are limitations that are quite obvious. They're using the same sets over and over again. They have no money, so they really have to make do of the little that they have. But I think that that works in their favor. You're forced to be creative when you have no money. Even today, that's what filmmakers have to do. And it's more about the suggestions that happen. But, you know, the famous pool scene, for one thing, I think is the best example of that. And there's just these really great little moments in the film, like the engagement party where the woman comes up to her and says, my sister in Russian. I think there's just Serbian. little moments. Is it Serbian, right? Yeah. I, I know things. Uh, there's just these small moments that I think it just really works. And I love the use of shadows. It's one of my favorite things about the movies of this era. And I just don't really think you see that a lot today in modern horror. Which is, um, I think, well, there's that's an entire discussion for an entirely different podcast. But overall, I would completely recommend it. Whether or not you are familiar with the horror movies of this period, whether or not you're familiar with cat people in general. If you know lots of cats that are people, I feel you should definitely watch it. But I mean, like, in terms of the remake as well. So yes, watch it. I don't care what anyone says. Watch it. I also recommend this movie. I mean, I, I agree with you. There are a few clunky moments, a few moments that would be perfected as the Valutin formula built. Just little moments here and there. And I don't think Simone Simone is the best actress in the world. She's not bad. She actually fits the character really well, but just some moments of line delivery and whatnot. But for the most part, this is a film that has surprised, not only was it great at the time, but it has actually surprisingly aged well. I mean, despite being set very much of that period, the honest portrayal of the characters and their relationships and the psychological struggles that they go through 
feels so real and so right that it still holds up today. The way the film is crafted and made, I mean, it's a very cheap film, but it's very cleanly put together and very strikingly shot. And the moments of suspense are still suspenseful to this day. The pool scene is just an amazing sequence. It has a few clucky bits that I'll get into in discussion, but it's still, I think, a fantastic film. And it is one of my favorite horror films of all time. So, as I said, I think that is why this film continues to hold up, is that it is a very honest psychological examination of these people and their problems and their relationships. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Obviously, the censors are preventing them from saying everything, but all the implications are still there. I think that works in its favour, actually. I mean, I'm fascinated with that era of the entire Hayes Code and censorship mm-hmm. film as well. So to actually see it put into practice of the effect that it had, I think, makes for a really interesting viewing experience. And there's just something about the pacing of it, I think, works surprisingly well, considering a lot of it is just people in rooms talking. Mm-hmm. It is no secret. This is a film about sex and about oh, yeah. the fears of sex and all that stuff. And the film is pretty blatant about the fact that it's about sex. It just can't say the word sex. Actually, what's funny is when they have fade outs and then fade back in when Irena and Oliver first meet, he comes up to her apartment and they're going to have tea and then it's night. And I'm like, normally in a movie, that cut would then have indicated that they had had sex in the interim. Mm. And in fact, no, they haven't. Yeah, I mean, the first half of the film is definitely about a couple kind of rushing into things. And it's as we go along, then we find out the limitations of their relationship that she's putting on because of her fears. And also that they haven't known each other for very long, I'm getting. Well, it actually it cuts the entire story takes place over the course of several months. Mm-hmm. But so, still, like, they get married, like, how quickly? I think like a month after they meet. Yeah. Wasn't entirely uncommon back then, but still, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and then what's interesting is, you know, he is someone who is like, it's okay, it's okay, I can wait, I can wait. But realistically, he is becoming more and more impatient and starting to have doubts and all that stuff. And she is all about, you know, the evil, sinful desires within and whatnot. And what I like, though, is that this isn't a film where it's very black and white. I mean, this is a film that could easily be psychology versus religious faith and whatnot. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's more just about how that those are parts of the individual characters. Yes, there's the whole sinful sexual desire, but then that's not really used as a criticism against Alice, who is someone who is very open about her desires and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And she's never punished for it over the course of the film. And there's the entire idea of faith, which, you know, there's like the bit when Irena is attacking them and he's like holding up the cross and saying, by God, it's not like the power of God is sending the creature away. It's reminding her of her own faith and her own fears that causes her to turn away. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really deep look at the way the film was looked at. I think it is dealt with in a surprisingly intelligent way, just because you have these ideas of what people think about sex in the 1940s. But it's very mature about it and handles it in a pretty complex way, I thought. Yeah, I mean, and it explores it both psychologically and in terms of morality, but it never holds up one ideal over the other or says one is the absolute right or one is the absolute wrong. There is no real right or wrong in this movie. It's just all about these characters and how their own struggles conflict with one another. And you also get that old world ideology of how things should be and then getting to the new world, which would be America at this point, and how everything is a little bit looser, everything's a little bit freer. And Irena can't quite adapt to that because she's just had old world ideology hammered into her. Mm -hmm. Even like Oliver. And by the way, a film starring Oliver Reed. Uh I know, right? I saw that. I was like, awesome. That was like when watching Godzilla starring Steve Martin. Dude, I love the fact that it's like Oliver Reed and I'm just like, 
Bill Sykes? <laughs> is, is, is he going to kill her? Hello? But I mean, even he has this idealized idea of what a relationship is supposed to be like. He almost strikes me as a, like, there's a point when he's talking to Alice and, you know, he's always such a happy kid and such a happy adult and everything was just so great. And I'm like, oh my God, you mean marriages actually work? You fucking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just like, you know, he can't figure out what to do with Irena right away. So therefore marriage is hard work, you guys. What I love is that this is a film that of the time is all about how maybe they made a mistake by getting married. Yeah. Especially as quickly as they did. And the film doesn't really judge them for wanting to get a divorce. I'm actually judging him. No, I know. Yeah. He went into something expecting it to all sort itself out and it didn't. Mm. And yeah. he was all mopey and pouty over it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But that was a very realistic reaction, too. True that. So, I mean, I can fault him, but I can't fault the movie for it because that's actually probably how it would go. Of He has this expectation that, oh, all these problems will sort themselves out. But when they don't sort themselves out, he starts to realize, okay, these are more significant than I thought they would be. Plus, it's also the fact that that's entirely what men might have expected at that time. It's just like, well, it'll just fix itself. Well, I didn't know I was never going to have sex with you. <laughs> so, of course, they send her to a psychiatrist who ends up becoming a really creepy, rapey psychiatrist. I got that the first time he met her. I'm like, ooh, I don't like you. It keeps getting worse and worse from there. But what I like is that it's not treating it like psychology is evil. Mm -hmm. It's just this guy is a sleazebag. Yeah, it's like, it's just this guy who's a douche. And his sword cane. The thing is so pimp. <laughs> the doctor is in. That's just sort of extra icing. It's like, yes, this guy is evil. Did you not think he was? Yeah. In <laughs> case you didn't know, there we are. Yeah, I just love how it just starts crossing the line of, and what if I kissed you? Yeah, that's a great technique for your patients. I love the fact that it doesn't even have to be sex. It's just the idea of any kind of Intimacy. possible arousal yeah. for her is just like, it's a sin. And then it even gets to the whole thing of when he confides in Alice. And Irena finds out and she's like, how dare you reveal all of our intimate secrets to your friends, you know? And then he keeps doing it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my god. Oh, sorry, by the way, I mentioned things again. Oh. Yeah, it's obvious that there is a true connection between him and Alice and that he probably shouldn't have gotten into the thing with Irena, but you can understand why he did because she is an interesting individual and captivating and rather alluring. But it's um, it's a very complicated, messy relationship. I like that because it's a very realistic relationship. It's messy. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the possible interpretation that Irena is just a repressed lesbian? I never got her attraction to other women. Yeah. I never saw that. No, I have the ones mostly based on the whole my, my sister bit, but um, I just like I, reading into these things way too much. Yeah. No, I just saw that as that woman recognized her as another Serb. That, yeah, that she was just recognizing her as the person that she was trying to run away from being. That that was another cat person pointing her out as a cat person. And she's like, but I don't want to be a cat person. Stop reminding me. Oh, I didn't even see it as that. I just saw it as that woman was another Serbian because they were at a Serbian restaurant. So yeah, that but there's another... repeated points where they point her out as looking like a cat and whatnot. See, I just took that as something because she never comes up again. I'm like, obviously it could go both ways. I, think. I mean, but then you have to wonder is if that person is a cat person, what is their life like in the city? Are they just going around killing people with this kind of open love life? That'd be cool to know. Because she obviously seemed more content mm -hmm. or accepting of who she is. I never got the closet lesbianism because I always felt it was the relationship with Oliver. 
that she was hung up on and how that would tie into her own past sins and desires. I mean, it almost feels like the story of a former prostitute trying to have a normal life and always just looking at sex as a reminder of that former life as a prostitute, you know? I kept getting more of that implication. Yeah, I think it's way more just about fear of intimacy and fear of mm-hmm. sex in general than it is about just fear of gay sex. Well, I did a course on um, queer fiction for my one of my final ever courses, and we discussed how you do a queer reading of something. So it was just a suggestion. You should just read everything queer because it makes it a lot of fun. <laughs> Which I have a hard time disagreeing with, to be honest. <laughs> but I never found like her attacks on Alice to have come out of lesbian desires. I thought that was more of jealousy. Exactly. Yeah. It's fun to look at things that way, but sometimes you can apply it to things where it doesn't belong. But that's the fun thing. I know. (laughs) That's how you pass university courses. Nicely done. This is a film about a message of how peanut butter and jam ultimately shouldn't be brought together. Yes. A++ (laughs) with a crown and a wand. I look forward to reading your thesis on that one, Noel. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the suspense. And we've mentioned the pool sequence. I dare anyone to make a sequence as good as that. Well, they tried it in the remake and it didn't work as well. Yeah, we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that when we get to that. I don't disagree. My only problem with this entire sequence is that one shot where they have the animated shadow. Mm -hmm. And it's like the sequence works so beautifully when all you have are just these shadows passing in front of the light and just the sounds from the darkness. And just that one animated blob just is like that one moment just kind of takes me out of it just a little bit. Other than that, it is an amazing sequence. Yeah, definitely. And then just boom, the lights come up and there's Irena just standing there smiling. And what I love about that whole sequence, too, is the fact that because the whole movie's in black and white, I'm like, it's just so much more sinister and scary. Mm hmm. And then you even have that great sequence where uh, Alice is walking down the street mm-hmm. and constantly going scene. going from light to shadow, light to shadow. Oh, it's a classic. And then the growl of the bus, you know? It's a Luton bus. It's the most influential things ever brought into horror. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, John Carpenter, but if we saw this panther stalking her, it just wouldn't be as powerful. It would just get ridiculous at that point. Like, how is there a panther just walking around the city and no one's like, is that a panther? That's, yeah. that's a panther. That, that's a Given little, the limitations okay, of the budget, it would have just been some guy with a pan for puppet, and that wouldn't have worked. Right. And, you know, that said, the scene where they do eventually encounter her as the panther when she attacks him at work still works, even though you're seeing the panther. But by then, the moment has been earned. Yeah. You know, it's been built up to the gradual reveal of, yes, she is a panther. And there she is as a panther. And if they had shown her as a panther in the scenes leading up to that, it wouldn't have had the impact because... Those scenes are still playing on imagination, and they're still playing on this whole question of, is she actually turning into an animal or not? Mm-hmm. You know, or is this fears mixed with just Irena messing with people, like, by making sounds and whatnot? I mean, it is actually a very good werewolf story in terms of how it's playing on other people's fears of whether or not this person actually is a werewolf, instead of just being on the person knowing they're a werewolf and everyone saying, oh, no, you're okay. It gets to the point where everyone starts to fear that maybe there's something to this, especially Alice, because she becomes the target of the jealousy. I love at one point when Irena finally finds out, she comes to him and is sort of just like, okay, well, you know what? I want to save our marriage. And he's all like, it's too late. I'm in love with Atlas now. And I'm like, what? What, what? No, no, no. Back this truck up. When did you fall in love with Alice exactly? Well, it was a touch melodramatic, but, you know, yeah. you got to get to the end of the movie. They did gradually build to that. You know, there was a scene where she started crying because he was doing bad, and she was like, well, you know, I love you, you idiot. And then they just kind of gradually become closer and closer. 
Yeah, but it, it it was just sort of a little bit like, really? Just... And then it gets to the point where he's even talking to the psychiatrist with Alice of like, so do we send her away or do we get the marriage annulled, you know? Yeah. Well, if I keep married to her, then she becomes my responsibility. It's like, eh, that's a bit of a douche move there. But, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you also have evil psychiatrists trying to push her into a sanitarium because nobody wants to accept that this is really happening. Right? What the fuck is that about? But what I like is that then they realize it in the end when she's confronting them that, okay, that is Irena. This is real. And then they chase her away. And there needed to be more of a final confrontation than just the whole she goes, kills the psychiatrist, and then runs off to the zoo. Yeah. It felt like it was missing a bit of a final confrontation between her and Oliver. I get that with the limitations of the running time he was given for the film. I feel like a good five, ten minutes really would have given it a bit more oomph. But I do actually quite like the ending. I think that there's something about it that works. It's, it's a bit of a, it's a downer, and I quite like that. It is, mm. yeah. I, I would have almost just trimmed out a lot of the psychiatrist. I think he was a little bit of an unnecessary, sneery villain. I prefer the ambiguity of not having, you know, the sort of cane twirling, ha ha ha, I'm evil character. Right. And he, he is the fear of male sex that she is afraid of. I get that embodiment that he's trying to force himself on her in the way, you know, bringing out those sinful desires and whatnot. But it feels clumsy and heavy handed. He doesn't feel like a necessary part of the film or at least his turn. I mean, having a psychiatrist there does bring a nice layer to things, but then turning him into the sneery, snidely whiplash is just, yeah, then it gets a bit much. And I think that confrontation and the attack should have been between her and Oliver. And but yeah, I do like that it ends on just the sad note of she just walks down to the panther cage. Let's the thing free and dies, you know? I love that the panther's just like, I'm gonna go for a walk, bitches. <laughs> Screw all this drama, I'm leaving. I like the whole setup of the key. Mm-hmm. They played that out nicely, of how she gets the key to the... to the. Well, I shouldn't say panther, leopard cage. Yeah. I love the fact that they do that, but the thing is, you kind of forget in the interim during the movie that she has this key until she gets there at the end, and it's like, oh, right. I don't think that much time has gone by. I mean, this film is an hour and change. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, they're not calling that much attention to the fact that... Because other movies... Oh, no, it, it's a good like... three-part thing. You have the setup of when she first notices him leaving the key, and then she gets that whole idea from the psychiatrist of, what if you cause some chaos? Second time is when she takes the key. Third time is when she uses the key. So, I mean, it's a perfect three-part setup. Well, just a side note as well, I love the zoo setting as well. I think, especially with the shadows of the bars and the dark, I think it works absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah. And then the shots of the panther and everything. Like, I love that one bit where the panther just kind of like freezes and then slowly looks up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just perfect use of stock footage there. Actually, just watching it, it reminded me of any time I used to go to the zoo in Greece. I just remember being outside the tiger cage, or the, no, I'm sorry, the lion cage. And I have a picture of me outside the lion cage where the lion was. And it was just like, he was just so cool. <laughs> and I love the use of her always standing by the window hearing the leopard howl at night. Mm-hmm. Just this constant reminder of she has two paths, go the animal path or go the human path. And she's always constantly locked between the two. Even when she's with her husband, she's still listening to the longing cries of the animal side. Mm-hmm. And I find it a very intelligently explored theme. And just this film, I'm just, I'm always constantly blown away at how intelligent it is. Now, what you had said about Simone Simon in your uh, review. Is it Simone Simon or Simone Simone? Oh, sorry. It should be Simone Simone Simon. Simon. I know it's Simone Simone. Simone Simon. I heard Simone Simone on TCM. To Wikipedia, one second. It might have been actually Simone Simon, but I think it was Simone Simone back in the old marketing days where they would change people's names. Yeah, that's the way that I heard it. Simone Simon, according to Star. 
Okay. Well, I remembered all the old ads saying Simone Simone. Yeah, and well, I heard Robert French, Osborne so. say Simone Simone, so. That might have just been how they marketed it, because it's catchy to just say the name twice. They'll remember her, and they'll come see the movies. And Robert Osborne, that's the way he said it, damn it. Yeah, so anyways, <laughs> so Simone Simone. But yeah, Simone Simone, and I actually thought she was really good in this part. She's very, I want to say delicate, but she comes across as very European to me. Well, she's one of those actresses that if you stick her in the right role, she works really well, but I don't think she has the best range. And she really does fit this role. I will agree with you. She is very good. I think it's just more, you know, with the accent and whatnot, some of the delivery doesn't come across all that time. Some of it, some of it, just a little bit. Take a shot. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was a very well-judged performance, considering how completely lurid and over-the-top in camp it could have possibly been. I think it was remarkably restrained. Exactly, oh, yeah. yeah. She's a delicate flower, and she has, you know, the foreign quality actually does add to the character really well. And, you know, she's a very modern society girl, but from this old background of being foreign. She's constantly stuck between these two areas, you know, is she trying to be a, a modern gal about town, but also being stuck with all of her ancient ways and whatnot, and ancient superstitions and whatnot. And I think it so, makes for a really interesting culture clash, especially considering it was being written during World War II, 1940s America. It's this fear of the unknown and happens to be the fear of the foreign. Mm-hmm. I believe Jack Tornier, though, the French director, he was one of the people who came back to America to flee the whole Nazi uprising. Because I think it was around the, the early to mid-1930s was when there was that whole wave of European filmmakers who moved over to America to escape the rise of the Nazi power, and I believe he was one of them. So, I mean, yeah, I, I can get that culture clash of trying to fit in and being kind of torn between, you know, where you came from and where you are. And I like how that's balanced against Alice, who is a very normal, everyday gal and really well played, too. What was the name of the gal who played Alice? Um, one second. I got IMDb Jane here. Randolph. Uh, Jane Randolph. Yep who I actually know from Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, where (laughs) she wasn't that good in that, but here she was really good. (laughs) I actually like that whole idea of the friendship between her and Oliver, that, you know, she has feelings for him, but, you know, she's not going to force them on him and whatnot, and she's still happy for him that he's found this relationship. But then, of course, you know, as that falls apart, things start to grow between them. I thought that was a very realistically portrayed thing. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, she's technically the other woman, and a lot of movies would, they'd either make Irena evil, or they would make Alice evil, or they'd make, like, they'd make one of them unlikable or something. Right, and... What was that? (laughs) That is fire engines and the police going past my flat. I swear to God, I did not start that fire. It is too far away for me to have started it. I'd have been amazed if you'd done that. You'd have been like the Carrie of Scotland. (laughs) Booyah. So anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love how she actually had that line in the film of, I'm very supportive of your relationship. I'm the new kind of other woman. Mm-hmm. In fact, like when she's at the wedding and there's that guy who's sitting right next to her and she's sitting right next to Irena. So it's kind of funny that he's having this conversation with Alice, but he's sort of just like, aren't they rushing into this and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. And she's all like, dude, shut up. Right. No, they're fine. She cares about this guy as a friend first. Mm-hmm. And I love that the two of them really have that great best buddy connection. You know, these two are really good friends and their relationship builds on things that happen later. But it's like even if a relationship never happened, these two would still continue to be really good friends, which is not something you typically see in like a 1930s. It's something you don't typically see these days because it's always like the woman is either the person that they hook up with or the object in between them hooking up with someone. Mm-hmm. 
There was something faintly depressing about seeing this actually very well-developed male-female friendship that does develop very naturally into something else being done way better in the 1940s than I've yeah. seen in most films recently. Oh, yeah. Right? No, and and yeah. I think that is actually another one of the things that makes this a film that's very accessible is that it's very honest and that helps it age well. And it's very honest about things that are still true to this day. It's not a film that gets old. Yeah. Well, there's some things that just never really go out of style, and I think that's one of them, really. It's a universal theme, and it works because it's handled well. It's not only in the good fashion, it's not done high camp. And I probably would have still loved it if it had been camp, because yeah. well-executed camp is one of my favourite things. But the restraint, and I, mean, I don't know if that's because of the budget limitations or if that's the way he actually wanted to go, but whatever happens, it's put together in a way that works. Yeah, it doesn't get hung up on like the old period-style courtships and whatnot. It's about what it is that connects people and what it is that gets in the way of connections, as opposed to all of the social flourishes of what all are people expected to do in order to be a part of modern day society and whatnot. That's the type of thing that would typically date a film. Well, for a man well, writing surprisingly complex female characters in the 1940s, I think is an achievement in itself. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting that then he went on to go and become this very successful writer in television, but doing anthology shows, which are all one-off stories as opposed to part of a series. I just, I, I really love his writing. I do. Enchanted Cottage. Just marvelous. Seventh victim, one of my favorite films of all time. I love it. So anything else we want to bring up about this film? Mm, no, I've run out of things. <laughs> one thing I was wondering about about the censorship, the whole bit where Alice is in the swimming pool in the very skimpy white swimsuit, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it had those pleats on her cups in order to hide the fact that her nipples would kind of be visible. Probably. Because it just, it seemed like an odd detail, and then it suddenly made sense of, oh, they're probably trying to hide something there so that they can get away with it with the censors. <laughs> it's entirely possible that the costumer thought of that, or it was just the style at the time, too. Right. Because sometimes you would get really horrendous styles for no reason. Or they could have had her jump in the pool and suddenly it becomes like translucent. And they're like, oh God, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. <laughs> I mean, but that was a surprisingly bold scene for the time. And like, I mean, you know, even given the censorship of the time, even just the shot of Irena bareback sobbing in a bathtub mm -hmm. was a surprisingly bold visual, but very honest visual too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, anything else? I've run out of interesting things to say about it, but I highly recommend it. For anyone who's interested in horror, anyone who's interested in censorship and film to have a good example of how people bypassed all the Hays Code, for an instance, and to see how it kind of sucks that it's 2012 and we can't write really interesting characters and relationships as well as you can do in 1942. Well, people can, but then they go through four other writers before they make it to screen. <laughs> Yeah. And, well, if this was written now, it would just be a lot more CGI, and then there would probably be a Taylor Swift song added somewhere, because, you know, you don't have sex, or you'll get pregnant or killed by a cat and die. Taylor Swift would be singing the Irena <laughs> song about being jealous of the other woman. And then there'd oh, be a band who went background. <laughs> and they would get a decent band to do the background vocals, but no, no, they can't actually be on the soundtrack. <laughs> what the hell was that? Civil War doing background? No, just put them on the soundtrack. Fuck sake, Taylor Swift. I mean, she's adorable, <laughs> but no, just get the Civil War. What was that? What was that? I don't even, this is so stupid. If anyone needs me, I'm just going to have a mental breakdown. So, yes. So, final thoughts on the film is I think we still all recommend it. For oh, yeah. the reasons that Kaylee just summed up beautifully. If your psychiatrist has a cane, I suggest you leave. <laughs> yes. Good tip. You should teach. Yes, if your psychiatrist <laughs> always has a cane... Believe Wrong. that there's a sword in it because he wants to stick his patients. Um, oh my god, I didn't even get that. Oh, Sit back and tell me your thoughts about your father. Or I'll cut you. 
Also, she has, the, I, I just realized that it's like he has that cane and then you have that statue in her apartment that is a cat. Yeah, the sword. pierced with a sword. And I'm like, wow, that's actually some uh, racy imagery there. Well, and then she also has that dream of King George pulling, or King John, what King is the King dude? The King dude pulling the sword. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The king dude. <laughs> and there's all that. She's got that, like, giant cat painting, too. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that never quite made it to screen that was in the script that was interesting is she draws fashion designs, mm-hmm. but all of the figures that she draws have cat faces because she's never been able to draw a human face. So mm. she just draws everyone with a cat face. That was an interesting bit from the script that didn't make it to screen. I wish that had made it. That sounds cool. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why they dropped that. But anyways. Maybe it was giving things away too quick. Or maybe it was just too weird. Yeah. But anyways, uh, this was followed up two years later by a film called The Curse of the Cat People, which is kind of a name-only sequel. Yeah. But it is about Oliver and Alice who have gotten married and had a kid, Amy, who, in the same way that the first film was all about relationship hang-ups and whatnot, this is a film about people who are unable to connect to the people around them, and that she's a kid who just doesn't get along with the other kids, she's always distracted by other things, who gradually builds an imaginary friend, who is Irina. Not really Irina, but just that she models after Irina. Mm -hmm. And she also then forges a relationship with an old woman who is, nowadays we probably call it Alzheimer's, but she was just suffering senility back then, and was lost in the fantasy of her old days as an actress. It's a film about people who are just find themselves increasingly unable to connect with the other people around them and how they retreat further and further into the fantasies of themselves. I mean, originally it was supposed to be called Amy and Her Friend. And then the studio was like, no, no, call it Curse of the Cat People. Well, the studio said, we gave you a title. You're contractually, you're, you're required to use it. Yeah. And they wanted a sequel. So it's... It's not a horror film at all. It's, I mean, there's a couple of kind of creepy moments involving the story of the Headless Horseman and some of the things that she imagines in her mind. But for the most part, it's very much a child psychology film. Mm-hmm. It's again written by DeWitt Bodine, who he... Uh, is not a woman. <laughs> who, I mean, again, he writes a very good psychological analysis of these characters. And Oliver also has a great part where he apparently forgot about the whole bit where he saw Irena as a panther and is just talking about how I already lost one person who couldn't escape her own fantasies. Now I am having my daughter go into it. It's like, I'm pretty sure Irena proved that those weren't fantasies back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty Denial sure that some of very powerful thing. Yeah, Yeah, it it could be that he's just pretending it didn't happen because it's just easier for him to deal with it that way. What's great is a large part of the film is about him getting over those hangups of his own and meeting his daughter halfway. You know, she comes halfway back to reality and he goes halfway into fantasy and starts having fun with, you know, fairy tales and whatnot again. It's a very warm, very moving film. And usually films about kids with child actors can get a little annoying, but this was a very captivating, very honest film, too. I mean, like, especially the way that she gets teased and taunted by the other kids. and Those just kids the- are assholes. Oh, I know. I love the way she just... I so wanted at one point, I was like, I just, I want this to turn into cat people, and I want her to, like, cat out and be like, um... Yeah, and I love the one boy who kills the butterfly that she's chasing, and then she just full-on slaps him. He had that coming. What I love is, is that the ghost of Irena wasn't really a ghost. I mean, they played it up as this is an imaginary friend that she is constructing in her own mind, and they never really divert from that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really captivating, really intelligent film. And the directorial debut of Robert Wise, who took over after Gunther von Fritsch got sick, 
who was the original director. I absolutely think it's a fit. Even if you never see the cat people, you should see Curse of the Cat People. But both of them together, I think it's just a fascinating psychological continuation of a lot of the themes from the first film without being like a full on sequel. Oh, I just realized that most likely where she got the name Irina is that she had heard her parents say it. No, and that's the thing is the film actually clearly has a moment where she discovers a picture of Irina and hears the name. Mm -hmm. And before that, the imaginary friend is either unseen or in silhouette. Mm -hmm. And it's only after she sees that picture that suddenly it has the face of Irena. But even then, Irena, as the spirit form, never says or does anything that would be outside of that child's range of knowledge. Yeah. Like, she never, like, gives her some hidden words about, you know, the relationship with her father or whatnot. Because yeah. the kid never actually knew about that relationship. Yeah. That's what I like about this movie is it's a ghost story where there is no ghost. And it's not a horror movie at all. It's never presented as a scary thing. In fact, it's more the ghost is the comforting fantasy away from the scariness of reality. I recommend it. I highly recommend people track it down. I haven't seen it, but it's an interesting addition to Robert Wise's career. I'm just looking at his filmography now. It's like, wow, oh, I've yeah. seen half these films. He's amazing. If you like Cat People, you definitely should check it out because it's it has a very similar construction and very similar character studies and whatnot, but in a very different way in terms of children and fantasy and whatnot and the fears of reality i will definitely just check it out so yeah I, I definitely recommend it and if you do check it out kaylee i'd be curious to hear what you think of it we'll pass on my thoughts to you when i eventually get around to watching it well i think this brings part one to a close uh we'll see you again for part two kaylee okay good night evie good night To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.com. The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool. Can everybody hear everybody? I can hear you, yes. Okay. You're going to regret that eventually, but... <laughs> it will come later on, I'm sure. And I promise not to get too dirty. <laughs> Are you sure you can keep that promise? Well, we'll see when we get to the remake. Hmm, good point. Uh, dude, you might have to worry about me at that point. Because I have so many questions about the remake. It involves Malcolm McDowell and sex, so it's going to get dirty. That was my worry. It's like, there's Malcolm McDowell and sex. There's going to be incest or rape or both. Exactly. Hey, you know what? He was the one who was in Caligula, not us. Not my fault. <laughs> if you need a captivating deviant, you get Malcolm McDowell.